Hello and welcome to these didactic recordings for Project ECHO, Westwick PHN, COVID-19 Pandemic Response, ECHO Network. These didactic recordings were made on Thursday the 6th of August 2020. A discussion followed, I won't bring you that part, but come along next week and join in the discussion. You can register by searching out Westwick PHN COVID-19 ECHO Network. Well, welcome to Project ECHO, Westwick PHN Hub. This is the COVID-19 ECHO Network. Series two, session four, titled Stepping Up Our Residential Aged Care Pandemic Response Planning Part Two. So good morning and thank you for joining us as we continue our conversations about COVID-19 outbreak prevention and response planning in our residential aged care facilities. In our last series of Project ECHO, we explored priority actions in caring for residents in the early stage of the pandemic and we discussed the relevant policies and procedures in place in residential aged care. You can go back and listen to the last season, you know, aged care sessions. Gemma's just going to place those in the chat right now. So you can click on those links. And uh, you can also listen to, if you weren't here last week, you can listen to part one by clicking on the link and it's also available on the West Big PHN website. Just Google COVID-19 Project Echo and you'll see the podcast link. So we've all been moved by stories from Europe and now in Melbourne of rack systems that have collapsed in the context of the outbreak. But what have we learned and what has been put into place in the intervening months and weeks? Many of us in our working week in primary care can feel as if we're working in isolation and may be wondering how can we regroup at this time so as to make the most of the opportunity that we currently have and work productively together. So it brings me great pleasure to facilitate this multidisciplinary, multi-sectoral education meeting of participants from across this complex and evidently vulnerable service system. As we consider the challenge that's upon us, I'd like to again put forward the following questions that I asked last week for us all as a group to reflect upon and discuss over the course of this morning and uh, in the coming weeks. What could a safe and coordinated response look like? And what role will the primary care workforce play alongside the aged care sector and tertiary sector response? What is the primary care workforce's capacity and capability to perform this role? Through what mechanisms will a primary care response be coordinated? What is the state of our communication systems across the primary, tertiary and aged care sectors? And does anything need to change? And are there quality and safety issues relevant to primary care that we could be addressing at this time? But before we get into these cracking questions, I'd like to now open the meeting with an acknowledgement to country. I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands of the West Vic PHN and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'm going to skip through housekeeping now and head straight into the agenda, followed by our speakers. Here's our agenda for today. We're joined again by Associate Professor Deb Friedman, and she'll be providing us with the Victorian COVID update and provide an update of the facilities and can um, talk, discuss infection control and PPE use, visiting GPs and nurse practitioners and nurses. Uh, Dr Rachel Cowan uh, will be providing us the update for Ballarat and Surrounds. Uh, we are joined this morning by Associate Professor Mark Yates and Associate Professor Lisa Clinic uh, to discuss um, residential aged care outbreaks and lessons learned from their recent outbreak and from evidence from overseas. Then we're going to crack into a discussion and again we're going to have, make time for our rapid five infectious diseases and aged care questions at the end. And Kate Graham as always will uh, describe our health pathways updates so you can see where our repository of guidelines, pathways and knowledge is housed. I'd like to now hand over to our, our first speaker, Associate Professor Deb Friedman. Thanks Deb. Good morning everybody. 6th of August, where are we now? Um, more than 12,000 cases in Victoria is where we are. Um, often up to more than 700 cases a day in recent times, multiple deaths in aged care. And over the state of Victoria, there's more than 400 active outbreaks currently ongoing 
Within Greater Geelong, our team is in touch with about 240 cases who are cases and close contacts of cases. We have over 120 cases in Greater Geelong. We've got cases in Golden Plains, Portland, and a very large number in the Colac Otway area. I've been asked about suburbs where we see a lot of activity. Um, I'll read out the suburbs where we have had activity and they include Little River, St Albans Park, Bellpost Hill, Grovedale, Belmont. We've had some on the surf coast, some in Newcombe, Corio, Norlane, North Geelong, Leopold, Highton, which is predominantly Opal aged care outbreak, Teesdale and Maud. I'll let Rachel speak about the Ballarat area. I know that the doctors in Horsham have been doing an amazing job of being super sleuths at investigating cases that they've had in their area. In terms of our team is currently managing three large outbreaks. We've got some smaller ones in schools, but the three large outbreaks are Opal Aged Care, which has more than 30 cases, Australian Lamb in Colac, which has over 70 cases and then about 17 cases in the community that are unlinked to Australian lamb. And then Golden Farms chickens, otherwise known as Tarosi chickens, that currently has 33 cases. Um, numerous schools, um, we have cases in numerous schools that, either, that would have been closed had they have not gone into stage three restrictions now. Um, in terms of overall in Victoria, when we look at community transmission that's not linked to other cases, that forms 17.5% of the total. You'll remember previously we were sitting at under 10%, so that's a concerning statistic still. If you look at how long it's taken for cases to double, so our cases doubled between July 20th and August the 5th, so that was 16 days it took to double our numbers. Prior to that, between July 8th and July 20th, that was a 12-day period in which we doubled our cases. So slightly slower to double recently, but no cause for celebration yet. Um, one of the questions was, what can GPs do now? And I think one of the things that I think is clear is our weak points are very clear. Apart from the sites, which are weak points, we know that the big problems that we have are testing delays and people not isolating before testing or after testing. And I think those are the two big weak spots where I think GPs can have a lot of influence. Plus, I think the other big role for GPs, especially in the aged care space, is being real champions for appropriate use of PPE. And that means when you're visiting facilities, facilities obviously without outbreaks, is ensuring that you are observing appropriate use of PPE and if there are issues we can always get other infection prevention people to go in and do some more education but I think being champions of appropriate PPE use is a very important role for GPs. In terms of prevention of testing delays what is the role of GPs and how can you assist with that? I think one of the important things is preventing panic testing. So somebody hears about a case related in some way to their world and they race out and get tested or take their entire family to get tested. If somebody is a close contact of a case, they will be contact traced and they'll be, and they may be asked to um, have an early test, often not. And I think it's a really important um, bit of education to say asymptomatic testing 
we want to avoid wherever possible and only occasionally will we ask to get asymptomatic people tested for a very specific reason. Um, and the, the sorts of people that we would like to get an early test done if they were close contacts would be someone who was a healthcare worker or a front-facing role like a teacher where we thought that there was other significant implications. The other thing where GPs, I think, do have a role, and especially given where we're sitting now, is if ever there's a doubt, isolate. So I think we need to err on the side of caution always right now. And so if there's a question about should I be in isolation, isolate first and then ask questions afterwards about whether this person should be in isolation. So we're always happy to answer questions, but I would say to always err on the side of caution. And then I think the other role for the GPs is any rogue investigating that you happen to do that helps us to uncover things that may have been missed is always appreciated. Um, a couple of very minor things from the literature that I just wanted to mention. Um, there was a paper that showed that 18% of patients are asymptomatic throughout their entire illness. Um, and that's not just the very young. So there can be um, nearly one in five people will be asymptomatic throughout. And I guess the other thing that's come out of literature, not from Australia, but internationally, is that there've been very low numbers amongst Indigenous First Nations people worldwide. And that really speaks to a really good um, preparation um, in that regard. And then finally, I just wanted to touch on PPE updates. People would be familiar with some of the updates that have come out of the department. So I guess the, the main thing that's different is that eye protection is mandatory an N95 or otherwise known as a P2 mask is required for high risk areas or areas where you could see suspected or confirmed cases where you're going to be anything other than very short duration with each person. Um, every workplace should have, a, have an absolute minimum of a surgical mask. Um, people are aware that PPE is um, largely effective for a four hour period if it's not soiled or contaminated. Um, if people are working in COVID areas, whether that means a COVID ward or an open ICU um, or with high numbers of patients suspected to have COVID, they should be wearing an N95 mask. Um, and then I guess Matt Dixon can talk about the supply chain, but the, you know, what's documented is that PHNs are the supply chain for GPs and that aged care um, private aged care gets their supply from the Commonwealth Department of Health. Um, I've got answers to questions which I'll touch on later, questions that were put in by John Henderson and Simon Benison. I'll get back to that afterwards. Thanks very much. I'll hand over to Rachel. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Rachel. Morning, everybody. Um, just a, a few points that in Ballarat, there are actually 14 active cases. We had three new cases yesterday. Oh, thank you. Which And two of which are linked to a local outbreak, contained outbreak at a small business in the community. So four staff and two close contacts. And all the close contacts have been quarantined and it's thought that all the other staff were considered uh, casual contacts, which is good. So... Uh, we think that one's under control. Um, fantastically, the age break uh, care outbreak that we had at Bill Crawford Lodge has now been stood down. Uh, and 
I know that Mark Yates and Lisa Clinic are going to be talking about that in a few minutes, which is great. I don't think that there are any other active cases in the community from what I could see um, from, the, from the latest data that I could get my hands on. But the fantastic news is that the Ballarat Health Services is now formally up and running as a contact tracing centre and they've very kindly had the team down in Geelong uh, yesterday to try and help with uh, training around that. Um, they've been working incredibly hard at the moment um, to sort of get up and running and get a good system and, and databases up and running and they're doing a fantastic job which is great. Um, cases or any thoughts uh, around cases or any questions um, should be sent through to the COVID ID phone at the moment which is uh, numbers on the screen. Um, and we're working towards getting a, we need to get an email up and running and stuff like that, um, still with IT at the moment. So uh, that's the update for our region. All right, thank you, Rachel. And so with that, I'd like to uh, pass over now to our didactic presenters this morning, Associate Professors, Mark Yates and Lisa Clinic. Thank you very much. So, so thanks, welcome. Uh, and I'm very sorry I have to leave early. I did put up on the chat that I would um, happily answer questions by email, so my email address is there. Um, I thought that uh, it's, it would be best to get a really solid summary of what happened um, uh, and so I'm going to ask Lisa to lead that because it was really uh, Lisa and the team uh, with ID and, and the hospital who, who did most of the work. So uh, Lisa, I'll let you go. carry on. No worries. Thanks, Mark, and thank you for the invitation to present today. And um, I'd also like to start off by acknowledging the country um, on which we're all meeting. I'm on Wadharong um, country today, and I also would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So just very quickly, um, I don't want to turn this into a case study, but more of a, what we have learned. But just to give you some context around um, Ballarat Health Service, Resi Aged Care, we've got 10 facilities. We're the largest uh, residential, public sector residential aged care in Australia. And we have uh, 10 facilities with 440 beds. We've been uh, providing um, residential aged care services for um, decades, in fact, probably over 100 years. So uh, this space is, is not unfamiliar to us. In mid-July, we um, had a uh, outbreak uh, in Bill Crawford Lodge, which is a 30 bed, uh, what we would called dementia unit. It's an older facility, it has shared rooms, um, many people who have cognitive impairment and who are mo mobile. So out of, a, out of when we did a risk, risk assessment on all of our facilities, it's probably the one that we really didn't want an outbreak to occur in, um, yet it, it, that's the one that happened. So the quick timeline there is that we isolated a, a resident on the 15th. We also, on the 14th, we sent a, a staff member home who was screened at the front door and had a temperature of 38 degrees. And we asked him to go home and isolate and get tested. Um, on the 16th, his test came back and it was positive. And that was the first staff member um, that we um, came up on positive. By um, Friday the 17th, by about 12.30, um, we'd all already swabbed all of our um, residents and 50% of the staff on the roster had um, been furloughed and asked to quarantine at home and get swabbed. Um, by Saturday the 18th, the, the, the isolated resident from the 15th came back um, positive and we transferred her across to uh, the acute services the same day. Um, She'd been cared for and um, and so we started the, doing the tracing or the, the um, infectious diseases people started 
during the tracing actually on the on the Friday. We decanted residents um, for in the shared rooms from Bill Crawford Lodge over to Jack Lonsdale Lodge so that everyone was in a single room and um, the rest of the roster disappeared on the 15th. So 100% of our permanent staff um, were gone within about 24 hours of the first case being um, identified. So we were having um, some major issues obviously with um, staffing. The second resident was um, identified on the 19th and transferred over to the acute facility. Two more staff were identified um, as positive. So we ended up with two residents and three staff. And from the 21st until now, there was no further new cases. So um, from our first lot of um, swabbing and testing, we identified all of the active cases. So I've got a question, who did all the swabbing? The swabbing, we actually have, um, we had our own staff initially on Friday do the swabs of the residents, which we thought was much better um, because of the, the staff actually know the residents and they um, are able to, uh, with, as you would know, with cognitive impaired people, they can become agitated and things. So having people who know them made it a little bit easier. The second and third lot of swabbing, we had uh, clinical um, nurses from uh, uh, um, swabbing centre, so the the um, the uh, where the staff were getting swabbed, they would come out. The the staff from that that centre came over in the afternoon and swabbed the residents. So some of the key decisions that we made very early on, we did a lot of a lot of planning um, before COVID occurred. Aged care was already in a crisis. We were, we already had an aged care royal commission going on. Um, looking into the quality and safety of residents in residential aged care. Uh, it, it's an underfunded um, sector. And, um, and if you look at the interim report from the Royal Commission, which is called neglect, I think the, the heading probably tells you everything about what they thought and think of where aged care is at the moment in, um, in Australia. It's, an, it, it's a very, it's a struggling um, sector and um, having a, a pandemic has just illustrated that once again. Um, not only are we a struggling sector, but we were also watching from very early on, and I was working quite closely with Mark around this, um, what, we were watching what was going on over in Italy and in Spain and in the UK and in America. And we could see that um, depending which country you looked at, 40 to 60% of the people that were dying in those countries were from residential aged care. We could see residential aged care collapsing across the globe. Um, and, and places where um, older people are very well respected and, and held very highly in countries such as Spain um, just could not cope and were, were unable to care for, for residents in aged care. So we were coming into this uh, with as much information and as knowledge and as learning as we possibly could. From around the world, we've also seen this play out in Newmarch and Dorothy Henderson up in New South Wales, and once again in, in Victoria. Um, acting quickly is, is a key thing, and we acted very quickly um, with the support of um, a number of people at, um, at Ballarat Health. We identified symptoms very, very early, and the key um, a key resource that we are using still, and we do it daily on every single resident, is the Safety Care Victoria COVID-19 screening tool. And the first three questions are key into that. And 
is is the resident different in some way? So those very subtle changes where that the staff who know those residents can understand and see um, is a real game changer. One of our residents was tested because she was leaning a bit to the left, a bit more than, than normal. So that's how subtle the changes were. And she came back positive. She was one of the residents that was positive. So the, the, the very subtle changes are, are, are really key. The other one is, has a person had a fall in the last 24 hours? And the other ones that Mark um, Yates um, also um, identified for us and we've included is um, anorexia um, and um, going off your food and um, uh, pulse oximetry. So a drop in your um, in O2 sats. We obviously also do temperature, but we all know that in older people, temperature is not always a good indicator um, for an infection. The other key decisions we did was isolate residents into single rooms. We have shared rooms. We've, we've got older facilities, and this is very common in public sector residential aged care. We've got older buildings and um, our, our, our facilities are often 20 to 30 to 40 years old. We were, we'd always planned to use Jack Lonsdale as our decanting um, uh, nursing home. And we have actually planned to turn that, if, if we were overrun with um, positives, that we were going to make that site a positive COVID-19 um, facility. The facility is great because it's got four homes with 10 rooms in each home and they are separated. So we were able to put um, the, the overflow of the residents from Bill Crawford into, that, um, into one of those homes and make that a red zone as well. We also had, had the debate very early on, back in uh, late March, early April, around what, we were, what was our um, approach to positive residents to, um, to the hospital. And so we had those debates, and they were debates, <laughs> back um, early on in, in April around do we transfer or do we not? And the agreed position, which a paper went to the executive for approval and also the board were notified, that if the hospital had capacity, that we would transfer positive um, residents. And the rationale for that is that we have seen, we, as I said, we're already in a, 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 in a sector that's under crisis and understaffed and often has unqualified staff. Um, I can train up all of my permanent staff into PPE until the cows come home, but when I lose 100%, of the roster, they've all gone and I get all casuals in and often people that have never worked at, at the facility or even for the service and I have no idea what their PPE skills are. It, it is very difficult to train up people very quickly. Using PPE um, for an eight hour shift is exhausting. Everything takes three times as long and you have to be meticulous in doing your PPE, PPE correctly every single time. So we ended up having spotters. So two, one, or at least one, if not two people were just standing on the ward watching the staff put and uh, don and off PPE gear to ensure that they were doing it correctly. So um, the, the transferring of a positive resident was very much from a risk mitigation strategy is that we, we don't want to have a known case on the facility because the, um, the the spread of that um, virus is very difficult to contain in, in aged care, as we've seen around the world. Uh, I'll go on to the next. So the changes that we, we've, we've done, we, we are continuing 
to um, review our plan. And I, I made some notes and I just wrote plan, 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 review, review, review. But the other thing that we did very much and very actively was that we went and sought information and we listened to experts. So um, we listened to our infectious diseases experts. We listened to uh, what the research was saying. I listened to the experts on the floor. So the nurse unit managers, they reviewed the plan and they've continued to review it to make sure that it is actually workable and doable. They're the people that are going to be driving it in their facility. Um, so communications to GPs, and I'll, I'll get Mark to, to talk to that very quickly. Meals was something that we hadn't um, covered as adequately as we wanted to, um, but we got that fixed up very, very quickly. And staff communication to um, furloughed staff and staff who are in um, hotels, that um, we would probably ramp up that communication a bit more. We did, did do a fair bit, but some staff felt, still felt quite isolated. Lisa, can I interrupt for one second? I've just got an yep. eye on the time and I know Mark has to duck off in literally three minutes. So yep. could I bring Mark on to talk to the communication to GPs and then let's spend a little bit more time talking about staff communication and, and meals and we'll further unpack. I'm happy yeah, to give no it as much time as it needs, but let's get Mark no off to his next meeting. Thanks, Lisa. Okay, Mark. Thank you. Um, did you uh, want to have a... Thanks. Thank, thanks, Lisa. It's a really complicated story, obviously, and it just indicates to me how, how much work is required to get this right. And it's not surprising, therefore, that we've had a very poor um, outcomes in Melbourne. And, and, uh, and I'll come back to that. So just around communication quickly there. Uh, what we've worked out, I mean, basically, is that there are three groups of GPs when it comes to any sort of any outbreak. There are obviously the GPs who are directly caring for the patient who is positive. Then there's the group who, who needs specific information and quite a lot of it. Then there are the GPs who are providing services to the residential facility that is a hotspot. So they need a certain set of information. And the reality is the GPs are part of a community. And so in fact, uh, it's very likely that the GPs in the wider community are either looking after staff uh, that belong to a facility or staff that attended a facility or families of patients in the facility. So those GPs also need to know that the balancing act for any organisation is just a question of how much information gets out um, before there's a, an adequate organisational response. And, and that is very difficult because uh, it can generate quite a lot of, it does generate, anything like this generates very high levels of anxiety and stress. And managing that really does require that there is an evidence-based skill set inside it. So that's the bit about communication. So, um, we certainly got feedback from GPs about frustration, about the lack of communication. And I think as an organisation, uh, we've certainly built that in now to, to our response mechanisms. Um, and hopefully that will work a whole lot better. I just wanted to make a couple of comments about where I think the roles of GPs are going to be so important and remain really critical to this response. And I'll be a bit late for my meeting, but that's okay. I think the first area that you have a role in is advocacy of good residential agency. Um, you guys know the stuff, and in fact, there's quite poor literacy, health literacy about COVID in the residential aged care sector more broadly. And so you've got an opportunity to engage with hands-on staff if you're there. And I would certainly be doing four things on if ever I visit a residential aged care facility. I'd be asking about how they're checking 
visitors and what their visitor check is, particularly are they asking about any contacts with Melbourne or any of the hot areas? I'd be certainly asking what their plan is if there was an outbreak. Is there one? How much heat do they have? Uh, what is their what is their their plans? And secondly, lastly, I'd ask them: Are they doing daily screening for the atypical symptoms of COVID? There is no doubt in my mind that places like Epping don't go from four cases one day to sort of, I don't know, what was it, 70 cases in four days later, just because they were transmitted between those four days. They had this disease running in the organisation weeks before they started doing any checking. And they would have had symptoms, but they weren't identifying the atypical symptoms. And what we do know is that the speed with which we get from symptom to contact tracing actually fundamentally changes the likelihood of reducing the contact spread. And there's a paper um, I, can I can refer you to. But I mean, by the time you waited for seven days, you've got less than a 4.9% chance of delaying or removing any significant contact. Uh, contact. Then um, the other role that you guys have is obviously continuing with excellence in residential aged care and the care of older people. And the first point I'd like to make there is that don't forget that older people are going to get all the other conditions they always get irrespective of COVID. And that's a lesson we have to actually take back into our hospitals and ED departments as well, because at the moment, anybody coming from residential aged care seems to be thought about having COVID problems, not about everything else that they usually carry with them. But don't forget that. Um, Plan for effective telehealth. Uh, video conferencing is obviously better than telephone conferencing, and a lot of residential aged care facilities now have that capability. But remembering that it is effective care, and you can do some, you can't do it all um, by video conference, but if you've got that facility, then you'll be able to maintain that contact if you ever get into a hot zone. Um, and, uh, and plan what you would do in the setting of an outbreak. How are you going to manage the care of in a residential facility if there's an outbreak in a facility that you are providing that care for? Do you know, are you comfortable using PPE? What are you going to say to um, uh, to your to your own staff? How are you going to how are you going to manage that risk coming back into the practice, um, or are you going to to step away? And I think that's a really important set of decisions. And I think that in the in the mix, excuse me, <laughs> I'm being asked to come to me. Um, uh, in, in the mix of things, uh, there's we set up a sort of a coding for for when there's there's hot uh, there's there's red, yellow, and orange uh, green zones as far as residential care. And I might get Rachel to speak to that. And I'm very sorry, I do have to leave. That's my own fault. I double booked myself today, but I'm happy to take answers uh, and uh, try and provide you with responses by email, or hopefully Rachel and Lisa can do a good job. And I try and come in tomorrow and next week. Uh, before the PAL care session and maybe answer questions there. Sorry about that. Great. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, no, not at all. Would love you to come next week. It won't be PAL care. It'll be goals of care, I think, I'm thinking. Um, but I think it'd be great to have you back next week so we can also get you, um, if anyone pre-submits questions, we could have you answer them at the head of next week, if you like. Thanks, Mark. Um, Lisa, I'm going to throw back to you um, and we'll pop up the slides, the rest of those slides. Thanks, Gemma. Cheers. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for that. Look, I'm just reading some of the chats and um, the, uh, look, our, our, our plan worked as well as it, but we're thinking it probably was 85% um, work. There were some things, as Mark just outlined, that we think we could have done a bit better. But 
that one of the reasons that it did work is that all the staff did exactly the right thing when they felt when they came to work and they or they weren't feeling well they they went home they isolated they um they quarantined um so everything from that point of view um the, the staff really helped by actually doing what they were meant to be doing um staff communication is was also um one of the issues that we'd identified with the staff communication we did a couple of zoom um, meetings uh to answer uh what was going on and david lister um and rachel came i think rachel might have come to the second one um in regards to answering questions around what was going on um hr they were worried about this their pay and things like that but then the second one um we could actually see them really wanting to come back and uh they were more worried about the residents and we started up a buddy a virtual buddy system with the staff so we had staff coming to handover into the facility on a um, twice daily basis and we also had um, the staff in furlough were, were being zoomed in to talk to residents and um, to visit virtually the residents as well but they're they're um they're coming to the handover virtually was very useful for the staff who didn't know those residents and um, they were able to give them some real um, gems in information. Rachel, do you want to, I know that you're online, would you like to talk about this? Because it was your team that, that developed this for us. Yeah, thanks Lisa. It was actually David who came up with it, um, which was fantastic. Uh, and it really helped to kind of work out exactly what was going on in the outbreak and, and which place we needed to be confirmed and uh, which place we need to be concerned about and which place we didn't. So the green zone was that there was no evidence of transmission, there were no cases in the facility and anybody could who was working there could work within the green zone. Um, the yellow zone as far as uh, was that there was a staff member, there was cases that were there but there was no evidence of any transmission. Um, so one of the yellow zones ended up being um, Jack Lonsdale because a staff member had worked across both sites um, as well. Uh, and then the red zone is where we've got cases of local transmission and cases um, within the facility as well. So it was and the way we kind of viewed it in terms of working out what to do with staff that we actually had that hadn't been quarantined in that setting was to say anyone in the green zone can go and work at any of the other facilities in green zone. If they moved through to a yellow zone or a red zone, they obviously couldn't go back to the green zone. So it was very much in terms of you could move up the ladder in terms of the traffic light system, but you couldn't come back down to the green zone. And so it was really about making sure that we um, had a, a core group of staff that were working in each area to in order to minimise the potential for transmission across um, the facilities. So, um, and it worked really well and it was a very simple um, kind of way of looking at it in terms of us being able to visualise in our head what was the issue and what wasn't the issue and, and with each of the, the facilities that we had. It was um, it was really good. So well done, David. I think it's something we'll keep on with. All right. Thanks, Rachel. And Lisa, did you have any final comments before we throw to the discussion? Yeah, look, probably just my final comment was that this was definitely an organisational response. But in our planning, we never expected the Commonwealth to come to our rescue or DHHS to come to our rescue or residential inreach. In fact, we protected residential inreach. We They did not come into the red zone. Um, that, you know, planned that we would be self, um, 
being able to manage this by ourselves. Um, and it would be great if we got some extra support. Um, and it, it's very good that we did that. Um, we had some issues with DHHS tracing, so it's fantastic. And and um, Rachel and, and Rosemary and the crew at Ballarat Health ended up doing the contact tracing and did a fantastic job at that. Um, the staffing um, from the, uh, the Commonwealth never turned up. Um, even though that that's what they say they'll do. So I think it, it is the planning that is very important at a local level, but also not to depend and rely on that um, the support might come in or someone might come to your rescue because um, it, it won't most likely happen. Other than that, I'll, I'll, um, I'll take questions or Thanks, Lisa. All right, so I'm going to quickly summarise, I guess, what we're really highlighting the excellent work in planning and communications of um, the Ballarat Health Service under your lead and Mark's lead, so thank you for demonstrating that. Um, I guess it's highlighting the importance of staff that know patients well, the use of the safer care tool and early um, isolation and testing and thinking about I like that language about the atypical symptoms of COVID. Um, that's a I guess, new, new language that I know that's been um, much discussed in the aged care circles and the importance of ongoing monitoring and testing for GPs. Um, isolating early and decanting plans. Question from Penny Scott in the chat was around, you know, the, the, the what's happening in private versus public in regards to knowledge and intel around where can people could be decanted. Um, and I guess I'm really excited by this new model of virtual residential aged care facility um, care that you, um, you know, as a solution that you found problem solving around the staff being furloughed, still playing at that vital role through virtual models. So, you know, this is the era that we're now in and I guess we've got time potentially to really make sure that um, we can increase capacity for and systems so that residential aged care can benefit from um, those models of care you know, again, highlighting the importance of people that know their um, patients well, being still engaged, even in the context of being furloughed. That concludes the didactic component of this session. We then had a 15-minute uh, peer learning activity where 90 participants joined in chat, uh, spoke. We came up with ideas, solutions and key priorities. Join us next week if you want to be part of that conversation. Finally, I invite Lisa Clinic to sum up and Deb Friedman to provide the rapid-fire Q&A. Kate Graham ends with Health Pathways. So, so one of the known knowns in this is that the, one of the first things that disappears is basic care. And uh, so um, we, we removed everything from the facility responsibility. So we, we, we removed the phones. So we redirected the phones because the phones weren't getting answered. Um, we, um, if all those decisions other than clinical care decisions were taken out of the, um, the facility. So ordering of linen was done differently, uh, meals were done differently, a whole lot of things. So that the staff on the floor could just concentrate on looking, doing that basic care. The other thing that um, we realised very, very quickly is that you need a clinical leader on the floor. So you need to have a senior nurse, potentially someone who, who knows the place um, on the floor. Once we had that person in place, um, we were able to relax a little bit around the clinical care. So now what we're doing is we're trying to protect our unit managers. We're, we're asking them not to go on to the, into the facility as such. And if they do go into the facility to stay away from residents and to make sure that they're distancing and, and all of that and making sure they're wearing their mask and everything so that they're casual contacts rather than 
um, a close contact um, at the facility um, because we don't want to lose our senior managers out of those facilities. That's when it starts falling apart. So um, the other thing that we're looking at developing is a, um, I've, I've worked in rural health, small rural health service for over a decade before I came to Ballarat Health. And we had emergency boxes. So if there was a fire or um, a, a, an issue, a trucks turned over, we had an, an emergency kit that we would grab. And we're gonna do that for COVID-19. It's gonna have lan lanyards in it. So that has RN, EN, PCA, because no one knew who, who was who in, um, when everyone's in full PPE gear. Um, we've got uh, a quick orientation list, a quick how to access documents um, and care plans, um, the, the important phone numbers. Uh, so all those, those cheat sheets, as well as some um, key items that staff need to have, such as their own um, face shields and a whole lot of different things. So we're gonna set up that, those boxes um, as, as those COVID-19 emergency um, boxes, which will hopefully help with orientating staff quickly. Um, we're, we're an we have an electronic system um, at Ballarat Health for our documentation. So we're able to um, print off very quick care plans that give a, a, a snapshot of, um, of the residents. But the key with our um, casuals was the virtual buddies. So they were that with the, um, the staff, permanent staff back in, the, in their hotels or at home, were able to connect with the casual staff and give them good handovers of um, the residents' needs. So they're just some, some of the things we did. Thanks, Lisa. Some fantastic strategies and in emergency, break into the emergency box. I love it. Actually, quickly before I do throw to Deb and I'm just looking at time, I just want to call Anita Phillips on to um, just describe, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about advanced care planning and goals of care planning. Of course, that was highlighted back in April as something that in primary care we should make sure is in place for all of our residents. And, and in the last 24 hours, GPs have been talking about how great the goals of care um, Barwon Health form is. I'm not sure if there's something parallel in um, Ballarat, if someone could please put in the chat if you've got a goals of care form. But I just would like to introduce um, Anita Phillips to quickly talk about the goals of care form. And uh, I'm going to invite Anita to speak uh, more substantially next week about this. Thanks. Mm. Um, morning, everyone. So I cross um, medical education and Bowen Health and uh, communication skills and general practice. And um, we've been doing a lot of work at Bowen Health to improve the communication skills of our junior medical staff in goals of care. And it looks as though it's going to translate quite well to the lead GPs in the residential aged care facilities um, to be able to develop those plans really quickly and to have some explicit expectations about um, what these residents' uh, medical care should be um, that's aligned to their preferences and goals. So unlike an instructional or a values-based directive, which is the advanced care directive, a goals of um, care is much more like a plan. That's what that um, Josh is talking about that's up on the door. Um, so we've got lots of resources at Bowen Health that could translate across to the Western Vic um, PHN. And there are some specific comm skills um, that are best with training. So I'm going to be quite interested to know what resources you want from Bowen Health and whether or not you want some extra comm skills training or just some scripts. Um, we've got some online modules. So um, 
that's just the promotion of what Bowen Health is um, able to support all of our GPs in the region. Um, it's one of my favourite conversations with any uh, resident or patient of mine. So I love to hear it because we would think that would be one of the most difficult ones. I love that it's one of your favourite ones, Anita. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that next week. Thank you. Um, Deb and Rachel, um, I guess our rapid fire is probably about two minutes. If you've got any um, big questions that, um, yeah, thanks, Deb. Uh, so I've got, I've got a lot. Uh, so I'm going to talk really, really, really fast. Um, clinical frailty score or the clinical frailty scale is the one that we recommend using. There's another one called the freed criteria, like my surname, but without the man. And it, you get a point for weight loss, exhaustion, slow walking speed, reduced muscle strength and reduced activity. And you're frail if you score three or higher. So that was a question about frailty. Um, if a doctor and a patient are both wearing masks and they perform hand hygiene and they're together for 15 minutes or less, that they're casual contacts and you just need to clean the area where a particular case had been, if they've been in your clinic. We consider patients infectious for 48 hours before they develop symptoms plus after symptom onset. Um, emergency departments would be one place to help with children with respiratory symptoms if they're seriously unwell. It is difficult to assess remotely. Um, if a st member of staff in a GP clinic tests positive, if they've had their own room and they haven't been in a shared space, such as a lunchroom, that might be easier to get out of with a thorough clean closing the practice for 24 to 48 hours to ensure that you've contact traced appropriately. If they were not in their own room and they were in a shared space, then that's going to be a little bit more difficult to avoid having a lot of people as close contacts. Um, and that kind of means keeping separated is, is the best thing to do. N95 masks can actually last for up to eight hours. A face shield um, to reduce contamination is certainly appropriate. Um, working in a nursing home is considered a high-risk environment and it would be appropriate to have both an N95 mask and a face shield. If someone was coughing next to me at work, even if they were wearing a mask, I'd probably ask them when they were having their swab done. Um, if people are not isolating with COVID, and you know that for a fact, the police phone line is 131444. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to use it. Disease-modifying agents in rheumatological diseases, several publications. The only thing that's been found is that if people are on corticosteroids, they've got an increased risk of a poor outcome. There is no um, evidence of an increased rate of COVID, and we know that people who are on um, Disease-modifying agents have got stable disease and therefore overall um, that's better for them to have a better controlled disease than uncontrolled connective tissue diseases. Um, the use of saliva in testing, it's not widespread. As Rachel said, it's in people who cannot have a swab. There has been some data about pooled saliva testing. So, for example, there might be a role for this in the future. So if you walked into a facility and you wanted to see if there was any COVID in there, you could get pooled saliva from a number of different people, but that's not currently being used. Um, somebody asked about, you know, should we test ourselves every day? Um, those tests don't have adequate sensitivity. Um, probably not the best bang for our buck, but it, would there potentially be a role for this in some workforces? I'm not sure. I think scrubs are a great idea, um, but are they going to stop transmission of COVID? No. Um, Rachel commented on healthcare worker infections, and a lot of them are required outside of the workplace. But we know 
if PPE is not used effectively, especially contamination by hands when putting on or taking off a mask is actually the biggest problem. Uh, I think that's all I've got. Thanks. And thank you very much. Um, and there's a rich amount of information, both in the audio, in the chat. Our dissemination strategy is that we'll now be summarised in the chat. Zach Hollow, our medical student, has been taking notes each week, so we'll release the notes. You can listen back to the audio as well. We'll have that all published and out in our post-session email tomorrow, and please feel free to share with any colleagues that haven't registered. Encourage colleagues to register and become part of the discussion. I'm now going to throw to um, Kate Graham. Grab that SurveyMonkey link and please pre-submit questions that we haven't answered today next week and let us know what else you'd like to learn about. Deb and I are going to record an audio podcast uh, tonight on contact tracing and interim advice that you as primary care clinicians um, can provide and uh, I'll, I'll click that on that. I'll send that out somehow over the weekend. Um, so I'm going to now throw it to Kate Graham. Uh, thank you to everyone for coming. Kate Graham's going to wrap it up. Hi, and good morning. I will try and be just as fast as Deb. Um, I've only got a couple <laughs> of updates for this week. Um, just to say that the PPE guidance has been updated with new details from the DHHS, um, particularly in terms of the eyewear and N95s. Um, if you have a look on the information um, page, um, the COVID information, there's an eyewear, uh, there's a PPE drop down, and in that we've got information um, sheets on eyewear reuse and sterilisation. Um, and also some access to eyewear questions there. Um, we've, as always, got the aged care page and information on the palliative care pathway, just about um, management of symptom treatment in aged care. On the practice management page, we've also got links to managing a case um, within your practice, should that occur. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks all, take, it, take care, look after one another and um, let's keep the conversation going, thanks. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Don't forget to register at the West Vic PHN by looking up COVID-19 Project ECHO. See you then.